Harris, and this is Tending Bar. Thanks for joining us. In today's episode, we'll share part two of my conversation with Peter Vincent. You may remember from our very first episode that Peter was the general counsel of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, during the Obama administration. You might also know Peter from his numerous appearances on TV talking about the capture of El Chapo, the infamous narco trafficker, with the help of a task force Peter led. In today's conversation, I'll ask Peter about tough policy issues confronting ICE during his tenure, including issues of asylum, due process, and the controversial program, DACA. Join us as we pick up conversation right where we left off. ICE has 20,000 plus special agents, more than 1,000 lawyers, and Customs and Border Patrol is similarly a very, very large organization that has to collaborate and coordinate with ICE. Um, so many difficult challenges that you face. I, I'd like to shift gears just a little bit to talk about some of the other challenges that you faced in your role with ICE during the Obama years. That was the time frame when we first began seeing, as I understand it, very large um, the caravans has become the word that we've used over these last couple of years, but very large movements of or or of inflows of immigrants to the southern border, and there's so many challenges associated with that, including uh, the large incidence of unaccompanied minors. And I, I, if you will, just describe for us um, broadly what were the challenges that you were facing during that era, and let's let's uh, then we'll delve into sort of how you dealt with them at a policy level and practical level. Thanks, Todd. It, it, it's a great question. If you'll indulge me for just a few minutes, because I feel like it's still part of my obligation to explain very briefly the complex and complicated mission that Immigration and Customs Enforcement has. It is often um, seen purely as a domestic immigration enforcement agency, when in fact, half of the agency is made up of special agents as opposed to officers. Those special agents are part of Homeland Security investigations, which has very little to do with domestic immigration enforcement. Homeland Security investigations actually operates in a variety of different criminal spheres that within which they have authority, nuclear nonproliferation, human trafficking, weapons trafficking, narco trafficking, child exploitation, child pornography. It has offices in embassies all over the world that focuses exclusively on very serious criminal violations that, again, have nothing to do with immigration enforcement. But especially recently, ICE is associated almost exclusively with its important but very controversial immigration enforcement mission. When it comes to that enforcement mission, of domestic immigration violations, that is handled by a very large uh, organization within ICE that is different than Homeland Security Investigations. That organization is called Enforcement and Removal Operations, and the men and women there have an extraordinarily difficult job. I've always said 
when it comes to ICE's immigration mission, they are guaranteed to upset precisely 50% of the people 100% of the time. We cannot in this country come to any reasonable agreement on how immigration matters should be handled. It has been that way for a very long time. Very smart, very courageous politicians and policymakers on both sides of the political aisle have tried to come together, have tried to sort it out, have taken steps towards comprehensive immigration reform. But it has especially in the past few years become so emotional and frankly so political that it's difficult to have thoughtful, rational arguments about the right way to do things. And that's a shame because although it is a cliche, it also happens to be true that we are a nation of immigrants. When I was with the Obama administration as the general counsel of ICE, which is, as you point out, is a massive legal organization, over 1,000 attorneys within ICE's Office of the Principal Legal Advisor. That's more than the total number of attorneys within DOJ's criminal division, which always comes as a shock to pretty much anyone and everyone that I speak to. We were confronted with a very serious humanitarian challenge when in early 2014, an unprecedented number of unaccompanied minor children from predominantly the three so-called triangle, uh, northern triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras made their way to the United States in numbers that we had never seen before. And frankly, we were not prepared for that uh, group of individuals of especially vulnerable uh, age groups to come to the United States. We made a policy decision through what we call in government the interagency process. So my colleagues with DHS and I met with our colleagues from the Department of State, for instance, to discuss the best way of handling this very serious challenge. Always keeping in mind that the vast majority of these individuals presented no threat to our national security or to our communities. And they were individuals, again, the vast majority of them very young, that were fleeing horrific gang violence in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Look, yeah, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let me, let me pause you on that. So the controversies here in the last couple of years have been um, the allegation that so, so much of the contingent coming to the southern border are, are, are not, in fact, fleeing difficult circumstances, that they are not fleeing violence, that they are economic migrants just looking for, for jobs sort of thing. Talk to us about the seriousness of the threat in the Northern Triangle to these people who are fleeing. Yeah, individuals living in the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras are being pushed out of their homes and their countries because of, in some cases, grotesque gang-related violence directed at young men and women alike, wherein they are effectively forced 
to join the ranks of these criminal street gangs or face being attacked, in some cases killed, or being threatened with their family members, their parents, their aunts and uncles, their grandparents being attacked, in some cases killed, if they refuse. At the same time, there are irregular migrants leaving those countries because they are effectively polled to the United States by the greater economic and educational opportunities that we are so blessed in this country to benefit from. So it's a mix. The allegation that mixed amongst these irregular migrants, mixed amongst these individuals seeking asylum because they are fleeing political violence or gender-related violence or sexual orientation-directed violence, the argument that there are terrorists amongst those individuals simply is not sustained by the facts and the intelligence. And that has always been the case. These individuals are fleeing horrific situations there related to criminal street gangs or domestic violence or horrific persecution directed at individuals based on their sexual orientation. Okay, so so that and, helps us understand sort of who they are. And I interrupted you as you were saying, um, within the administration, there was reflection upon that's who they are. How, how do we treat them appropriately? In 2014, when we saw these large numbers of unaccompanied minors coming to our southern border, we made a decision through the interagency process to do everything we possibly can, could, to make sure that family units, in many cases, mothers or fathers and young children, could remain together. And we had to come up with a variety of plans very quickly that would enable us to handle these individuals and to process them and to allow them to have their day in court to seek asylum or some other protection in the United States. And so we literally emptied out the training facilities of uh, our colleagues uh, with Customs and Border Protection, in particular Border Patrol, to use the barracks, the kitchen, the recreational area of those training facilities all around the United States to house, to feed, to provide counseling to, medical attention to, family units. And I had the distinct pleasure of visiting one of these particular units, uh, facilities out uh, in New Mexico, in Roswell. And it was absolutely heartbreaking to see babies in arms uh, with their mothers and to hear their stories. We also coordinated with the Department of Justice its executive office for immigration review, which provides immigration judges. They are administrative law judges. They're called immigration judges, but they're Department of Justice attorneys. With courtrooms and uh, video hookups so that we could have asylum hearings in these border patrol facilities in order to expedite the processing of these family units. And when we could determine that they were, these individuals were not a threat to our community, 
and that we had a reasonable expectation that they would, in fact, show up for their more formal substantive immigration hearings down the road, in some cases, frankly, years down the road, then they would be released on their own recognizance and in many cases required to check in uh, with uh, enforcement and removal officers to ensure that they were going to make their court dates. How how did that work out? What do the stats show us about how well they complied with returning for their court appearances? It's important to remember that the vast majority of these individuals truly believe that they will receive an immigration benefit in the United States, often asylum, which enables them to convert that to lawful permanent residency or what we still call a green card, even though the card has not been green in color for decades, and then ultimately to citizenship. They have a well-founded basis to believe that they will be granted that status as asylees by an immigration court. They want to regularize their status. They don't want to um, live in the shadows, not being able to work or uh, become become part of the body politic here. And so we had extraordinarily good numbers of percentages, I should say, of individuals actually appearing at their immigration court hearing many months, or in some cases, many years down the road. The reason for those delays are that the immigration courts are hopelessly backlogged. When I was the principal legal advisor, which, as you know, is just a sexy way of saying general counsel of ICE, We were able, through various administrative procedures, to get the immigration court backlog down to, it's still a massive, it was still a massive number, 350,000 total cases on the docket. It's now well over a million cases. And we did that through a very disciplined approach of looking on a case-by-case basis and putting those cases at the top that reflected individuals who did pose a danger to our nation our communities, terrorists, human rights violators, child molesters, kidnappers, and murderers, and getting them actually removed, we used to say deported, removed from the United States as expeditiously as possible. And then also putting in the process those cases where we thought there was a truly a well-founded basis for some immigration benefit or protection to include asylum for individuals like those fleeing the uh, uh, Northern Triangle countries. We actually administratively closed those cases for individuals that had been in the United States in some cases for decades, had perhaps overstayed a lawfully issued visa that is never returned home, as, as is the agreement, who had become part of our body politic and had U.S. citizen children or other family members that could lawfully petition for those individuals to remain in the United States. Those cases became a lesser priority so that we could attack the docket and get the, as we like to say, perhaps a bit, uh, not diplomatically, the worst out first. And those are hard decisions to make, but we we, we really took those decisions seriously. And uh, I'm I'm very heartbroken to see that the immigration courts now are, are, again, well over backlog to the extent of well over 1 million individuals. So help us understand, um, under American law and under American treaty obligations, who is entitled to asylum? What what entitles one to asylum? And what does asylum confer on them? Todd, uh, as an amazing, brilliant lawyer that you are, uh, you, you understand that there remains 
tragically a, a pernicious and persistent misconception that individuals in the United States that are not citizens or lawful permanent residents have no constitutional rights whatsoever. In fact, the United States owes an obligation, a responsibility to all individuals located in our territory, regardless of how they got here. And the vast majority of the constitutional protections that we are so blessed to enjoy in this country apply to irregular migrants, individuals that some politicians call illegal aliens, including those rights apply to those individuals, including the right of due process, substantive due process, procedural due process, and effectively the equality uh, of of their humanity in the United States. Asylum law under the United States pursuant to to international treaties is a specific form of law that the United States decades ago provides to aliens, non-citizens, irregular migrants that are able by any means possible to get to the United States and to apply for based on their political beliefs, based on gender, based on any of the so-called immutable characteristics of an individual's identity, religion. And so it provides an individual in the United States who meets the U.S. law standard of a well-founded fear of persecution with the ability to find safe haven in this country, wherein he or she can then, after one year, convert that asylee status to lawful permanent residency status and ultimately, after a number of years, five in most cases, become citizens of this great country. It is often confused with refugee status. United States has a proud tradition with instances of failing to live up to that tradition of providing refuge, safe haven to individuals located outside our country. These individuals are processed overseas. Most recently, we've heard of the horrific situation in obviously Syria, but there are other countries as well, Afghanistan, where I've spent some time, uh, all over the world, Rwanda, where I've also spent some time, where those individuals apply through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and US, the U.S. government, are they are subjected to background checks to make sure that they're not the persecutors, that these are individuals that have been persecuted, database checks to make sure they're not human rights violators or terrorists, and they are ultimately processed through a system overseas. Once they are granted their status, then they're allowed to come to the United States as refugees and then are able to process to become similar to asylees, lawful permanent residents, and then ultimately citizens as well. So, so that's great, Peter. So help us understand um, the process that is due. So you, you just said that we owe constitutional duties um, to all persons uh, that are within our borders or who show up at our borders. In, in the last couple of years, we've heard a pretty familiar refrain that so many of the, of the um, persons attempting to immigrate into the United States simply aren't here legitimately seeking asylum. That, that's been the allegation. But we, we're making that statement without having given them any hearing without having afforded them the opportunity to make their case. 
and are are not admitting them as a result. Help us to understand the the legal uh, your legal position on on that practice. Asylum law in the United States entitles individuals who present themselves to any homeland security official at a port of entry that's typically a customs and border protection officer or any official in the united states uh, who encounters that individual in the united states no matter how that non-citizen arrived in the united states legally on a visa illegally by crossing the border without examination and authorization. And that has been our time-honored tradition under U.S. law and our U.S. treaty obligations. About a year ago, the Trump administration, as a policy matter, started to, in my opinion, illegally require asylum seekers to present themselves only at official U.S. ports of entry. That is not between the individuals that were entering the United States were not allowed to seek asylum if they came across illegally or that they were been present in the United States illegally for many years or recent arrivals. That has caused, as you might expect, a real uh, ripple effect in that now we have individuals waiting in extraordinarily dangerous situations in Mexico where they are metered in over time through official ports of entry to meet with government officials, again, in the vast majority of cases, a Customs and Border Protection officer, to stake their case for asylum. What we had under the previous administration and during the early days of the Trump administration was a situation wherein individuals would often come to the U.S. border, including women and children, and immediately present themselves, not at a, necessarily, not always, at an official port of entry, but along the very long U.S. southern border and raise literally their hand and talk to a border patrol in 99% of the cases officer and say, I am officially applying for asylum. At which point then they would typically be detained for a very short period of time. The processing would occur to make sure that they had proper identification and they were not uh, in a threat to our country or our community. And, and, and the, the procedure would continue. Again, that, that's the way that it should be, in my opinion. That's the way that constitutional, as well as immigration and asylum law experts in academia believe it is our obligation under current U.S. law and regulations and our international treaty obligations. So help us to understand um, the policy that existed un under... Uh, under your watch there, it has been argued that family separation, for example, was occurring uh, in the Obama administration and um, that, that, that the uh, policy as, as it became in the Trump administration was merely a continuation of that. Can you help us understand the similarities and the distinctions? 
I have been asked this uh, a lot, most importantly by you just now, but also I've talked to the news media about this. There was never any official or unofficial policy or practice by the Obama administration of family separation to be used as a deterrent. When we were faced with the then unprecedented number of individuals, mostly unaccompanied minors, coming to the United States, we did everything we possibly could to ensure that family units would remain together and that they were provided the constitutionally protected procedural and substantive due process rights that they are entitled in this country. And that was something that we discussed through the interagency process. When we were first confronted with the unprecedented numbers of individuals, we discussed a wide variety of options of how to deal with it. But family separation may have come up once or twice as we were looking at all the possible options, and it was soundly and expressly rejected. So why is that, did, did, did you discuss the potential deterrent effect of family separation? We, and you said, as you say, it was rejected. Tell, tell us why. My recollection was that we discussed a wide variety of deterrent actions that the U.S. government could take in order to slow the degree or the amount of individuals coming into the United States because we were being in a sense, overwhelmed, and we were worried that we would not be able to appropriately process so many individuals, and that it would create a grave humanitarian issue on our southern border. Separating families was discussed, and it was ultimately decided that it was an it would be an inhumane treatment of individuals fleeing violence or seeking educational opportunities in the United States, and it was expressly rejected. Now, it's different than what the Trump administration has done through both the Department of Homeland Security, my former agency, and the Department of Justice, where a decision was made to prosecute the parents of children coming into the United States without prior authorization by putting them into U.S. federal court criminal proceedings for illegal entry. Therein, by necessity, separating children from their parents. And the idea was that word would eventually trickle back to the Northern Triangle countries and that parents or guardians would realize that there would be family separation and that that would have a strong deterrent effect on individuals coming to the United States. The problem in addition to creating a horrific humanitarian crisis that will leave parents and children in thousands of cases irreparably damaged and emotionally and mentally uh, traumatized is that it does not serve the deterrent effect that the Trump administration had hoped for. Because individuals, parents, that are faced with possibly losing their children to being murdered in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, to having their daughters raped in those incredibly violent countries, will still 
and we have seen this, will still choose to take the extraordinary risk and the awful journey from those countries through Mexico to the United States with hopes that they won't be separated from their children. And it sickens me to hear people blame the parents for subjecting their children to the potential of separation when they have no idea how bad situations those families are in the Northern Triangle countries that forced them to leave their homes, their extended families, and their countries looking to survive. So, Peter, you're describing um, policymaking that has some compassion, um, that is uh, seeing the subjects of the regulation as human beings, and that realizes that the process that we afford persons is uh, less about, or not only about, who they are or what they may have done, but also importantly about who we are and what kind of what kind of uh, nation we want to be. Like the first half of my conversation with Peter, which we shared in episode one, the second half also covered a lot of ground. And at this point in our conversation, Peter and I took a detour to talk about current events. We talked about the underlying values that shaped and motivated the policies that he supported while at ICE. And we talked about how those values relate to the present moment in American politics. We'll return in just a few minutes to talking about DACA, a program for which Peter was one of the principal architects. But first, I think you'll find it interesting to hear more about the spirit of service, professionalism, and patriotism that motivated and permeated all of Peter's work. You can see the, the nexus between our political moment now and these due process questions that you had to confront in ICE because the Black Lives Matter movement and the larger public that is beginning to uh, reach broader awareness uh, of the policing issues that plague our black community um, at, at heart are, are urging us to be true to our values of equality and um, and and about respect for the individual. I, I, I watched a video just this morning that a friend shared to social media where a young woman was arguing that, you know, she didn't uh, have much sympathy for George Floyd because he had some kind of criminal background. And I, um, as I said during the episode, th this isn't about what, what they have done. It's about who we are yeah, as people right. that we, that we want to care uh, uh, to change these things. And, and you, know, you and ICE were reflecting policies that that were undergirded by by those same values that seem to be getting lost in the in the current administration at some points, and not to be too political, but no. But you know what? We can we can talk and um, more about how. Listen, I was head prosecutor for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. I did five hundred extraditions in Colombia. I am a law enforcement guy, but more than a law enforcement guy, I'm a rule of law guy. And what we're losing sight of is that these individuals have, thank goodness in this country, they have the constitutional right to be heard and to be given the appropriate process. And that we seem to, maybe too political to say, we seem to be getting away from all of that. Um, and there's, it's been, there's such been a cleavage on the political side. I don't know if you saw the horrific video of the 75-year-old man in Buffalo 
I mean, come come on, guys. Um, and everything is just so part. So listen, I'm. Um, I think we with this law and order, which is a charge term, especially in the United States, with the civil rights movement and and a number of Southern governors and states that actually use that to deprive people of equal justice under law. Um, that's what I, and we're just sort of speaking out, uh, thinking out loud here. That's what I'm, I'm just horrified. I mean, listen, the America first, that that's a charge term too. That goes back to isolationism and anti-Semitism, back to Henry Ford and, and, um, the, the whole group of uh, eugenics uh, fanatics back around World War II, Charles Lindbergh, you know, and we seem to have forgotten our history already, right? Nazis, um, white supremacists, KKK, marching. Um, it's, it's just so disturbing. But how, how did it touch you when the uh, Unite the Right rally occurred in Charlottesville. What was your response? Oh, you know, I was I was physically nauseous. I, I, I could not believe what I was watching. It was like uh, I was having a, a a night terror. And uh, in of all places, Charlottesville, Virginia, the home of uh, Thomas Jefferson's vision of. Uh, higher education, I was naively content in thinking, like many, that the election of Barack Obama as President of the United States meant that the United States had turned a corner on our horrific race relations past and that there was real opportunity and did not realize the level of racism and xenophobia and bigotry that was hiding and lurking in the shadows that African-Americans have always tried to tell us. I didn't realize it until I watched those horrific marches in Charlottesville. So to that extent, I'm, I'm sickened by it, but it's better that we all know that it's there. I knew there were problems. I saw them in law enforcement. I know about implicit bias. I've seen it. We do training at ICE. We would go to the Holocaust Museum, and there's an incredible program there on law enforcement's role in the Holocaust and in normalizing the laws, the policies, the practices, and the procedures under German National Socialism that enabled that nation state to systematically and legally deprive its citizens of their fundamental rights. And that was an incredible course. So I... I and I was blessed, I've attended it twice. And to see it through the eyes of many of ICE's sworn law enforcement officers was, was really a special experience. And I think for many of them, they had one of those light bulb moments. But it, it, it's a conversation that this country, like our problem with narcotics and drugs, needs to have that will take a long time. It will take some really painful, deep, looks into ourselves and the darker nature of this country and of, frankly, all of us as human beings. In any large organization, enforcement organization like ICE or Border Patrol, um, they're going to be wonderful people who are there to protect and serve, and that'll, that'll describe most, most of them. There'll be some, some bad apples. But right now, I think, uh, as we have watched the... Um, 
the police response in, in many instances against peaceful protesters, the inappropriately violent response against peaceful protesters. Uh, we're shocked at, uh, we white people, I think mostly are shocked mm -hmm. at the breadth of the inappropriate responses, how common they have been. We would expect yeah. it to occur sometimes. We know it's unfortunately going to occur sometimes, but it has happened so broadly and so frequently here in the last two weeks during these protests that it, it is making Americans wonder aloud how widespread how racism is in police forces. How, how broad is the problem within ICE or Border Patrol? And what, what can we do to educate and, uh, and to correct the problem among the, among the ranks? The, the problem of straight-up racism and implicit bias within law enforcement agencies within DHS, to include ICE, CBP, Secret Service, is a serious issue. And it's something that the leadership has addressed and has spent considerable, a considerable amount of time uh, trying to improve upon through training. And I think that it will take another, sadly, generation to improve upon some of the systemic problems within ICE and CBP. Uh, and people like me uh, who assumed that the country was better than it frankly is uh, will spend much more energy and thought on improving my country and in particular law enforcement to get to a, the perfect union that I truly believe we will reach and continue this experiment. You know, I, as I said at the beginning, <clears throat> um, I, I think watching conversations like this can be an antidote to cynicism uh, for, for many to see, um, good people being serious about about the values uh, that their jobs are reinforcing. Um, one of the motivations for putting this together uh, was earlier in the in the Trump administration when uh, James Comey was fired and then Andy McCabe was fired and um, allegations were made against Peter Strzok and um, all of those um, FBI-related conversations in the public were premised on allegations that um, officials are just partisan. They all are just representing their team, whatever team they are on, and that they, they can't ultimately be relied upon to either be impartial or merely professional. And I just so firmly... I have to reject that idea about human nature. Sure, we all mm -hmm. have a perspective. Um, mm -hmm. James Comey was a lifelong uh, moderate Republican. Andy McCabe uh, mm -hmm. is apparently a Democrat. His wife ran as a Democrat for office in, in Virginia. Um, Bob Mueller, but lifelong I, Republican. Exactly. But I, I believe that these are people who are 
capable of rising above their self-interests. I think we all are. That's also part of human nature. But I think that organizations can be structured so that we keep our biases more or less in check um, by by having our our assumptions tested by our colleagues, by um, decisions that are being made that are impactful on others' lives, being part being made through processes that in, you know include multiple eyes, and um, and so I was I was frankly upset to see the criticisms of the FBI and and individual FBI um, officials who had been career-long servants of the public. And um, so I feel like um, showing showing conversations of people who've been in positions like you have is a way for people to say, well, you know, I don't, he doesn't seem like a partisan. He seems like he takes these these issues seriously and not just, not just the job responsibility, but being cognizant of, of the interests being served by carrying out those functions but you've done a very excellent job at articulating today. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so troubled by the attack on the so-called deep state on career, nonpartisan, apolitical public servants on science, on facts, as somehow being politically motivated when in my entire public service career, including most recently when I was for the first time a political appointee rather than a career employee of two different federal government agencies. I never knew what the political persuasion or inclinations of all of those I was privileged to work with in both the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. I didn't care. Uh, I hoped that it was divided amongst Democrats, Republicans alike, and to treat hardworking, loyal, trustworthy public servants as part of a so-called deep state is just surreal uh, and deeply offensive to me when, uh, again, politics, even when I was a political appointee, played a, a... incredibly minuscule role, especially and appropriately, especially within law enforcement and national security questions. I wanted the best ideas, the smartest people. I didn't care how they voted. I didn't want to know how they voted. I just wanted us to do the best job we possibly could protecting the homeland and our communities and working closely with their allies. So this is deeply disturbing, not only to me, as a political appointee with the Obama administration, but with my uh, amongst the vast majority of my colleagues who I assume may be Republicans. You can hear the stress and strain in Peter's voice as he protests against the current political climate in which far too many of our fellow citizens have succumbed to the cynical view that public servants can only ever be partisan. Part of the reason I wanted Peter to participate in this tending bar project is that he simply disproves that notion. This is a guy who doesn't consult his party to determine his principles. This is a guy who relies upon his principles and his values to determine the policies he supports. 
And he's been telling us about those values and those principles throughout this interview, among which are respect for the dignity and humanity of every individual showing up at our southern border. So against that backdrop, it might be surprising to some to learn that enforcement and indeed deportations increased significantly during the Obama administration and during Peter's tenure at ICE. So as we circled back from talking about current events, I asked Peter to tell us more about enforcement priorities at ICE. So Peter, while you were, you were in ICE um, at a time when uh, actually de deportations were at a, at a record high, um, uh, even though there's been some controversy uh, around immigration and deportations under the current administration, it's sometimes overlooked that under the Obama administration, deportations rose significantly, and, and that, was, uh, that was part of your department. Can you tell us about that? And what, how was that managed? How were those decisions come about? What was, what was the policy behind that? We were able to remove the largest number of individuals in a fiscal year in the history of the United States to include to date. And the reason was that we, for the first time in shockingly, the first time in the agency's history, we were able to come up with a prioritization of cases in order to uh, um, process, allow court dates and hearings, and ultimately remove, that is, deport individuals who reflected significant dangers to our community and our country. Terrorists, human rights violators, serious criminals, rapists, murderers, child molesters, child pornographers. The idea was that we could get a bipartisan, comprehensive immigration reform through Congress to be signed by then-President Obama. And we had the support of, of fairly conservative Republicans like Marco Rubio from Florida, who actually spearheaded the so-called Gang of Eight efforts on comprehensive immigration reform. And unfortunately, I think for the entire country, that did not uh, make its way through uh, the House of Representatives. And Marco Rubio ended up, for whatever reason, walking away from the very legislation that he has had, had championed. Because we had removed so many people, to, because we were much more efficient, President Obama was labeled by one of the advocacy groups as the so-called deporter-in-chief. So it's interesting now in the very, very partisan political dynamic that we are all experiencing in this country for certain policymakers and politicians to accuse President Obama and that administration, including myself, of being somehow soft on immigration violators and being part of the so-called open borders clique, when that was not at all true. And as, as I said, and I've said it many times, when it comes to immigration issues, we are bound to upset precisely 50% of the people 100% of the time. And the fact that President Obama was referred to by an advocacy group as a deporter-in-chief, I think, is a, a perfect example of that very um, dynamic. So you were able to prioritize the cases to process first for removal so that uh, you were considering potentially dangerous or criminal um, persons first. 
But you said that was the first time which that when that prioritization had occurred. Had that not been the policy in prior administrations? Had there not been a, a capability? That and why had not? not been the policy. In fact, prior administrations and the current administration effectively treats all cases alike, whether it's a child pornographer or a rapist or a human rights violator on the one hand, or someone that's been in the United States who overstayed her visa, who has been a completely law-abiding member of our body politic, but without legal authorization to be here, who has raised U.S. citizen children, and they would treat those cases alike and dedicate literally, Todd, the same amount of resources and court time to those completely different prioritizations or priority cases. And so for the first time, the interagency came through, worked with Homeland Security, obviously, Department of Justice, the Department of State, to put those cases, those individuals that represented the greatest threats to our nation and our communities on the docket first and to move those cases through to remove those dangerous individuals as expeditiously as possible. How how did you know that they were dangerous individuals? There must have been some preliminary process to triage and and sort persons as they arrive. Is is that accurate? How how did that happen? That's that's accurate. We went through a process wherein all 1,000 attorneys within ICE were given a certain number of cases to review, to look at the criminal uh, records in the case, to look at other intelligence, to look at sworn statements by FBI or Homeland Security and and investigations agents to determine whether or not, if they hadn't been convicted, they had still enough evidence to treat them as dangerous to the community. And it was a very long, very labor-intense process. We literally went through 350,000 cases to prioritize those cases as being top priority, meaning the most dangerous individuals, to those cases at the very, very bottom, which we administratively closed. They remained on the dockets, but they were not scheduled for court hearings at, at that point. And then as we were able to move our way up by deporting those individuals who represented dangers, then certain cases would be recalendered and put back on immigration uh, uh, dockets. And shockingly, That had never been done before. The Legacy Immigration and Naturalization Service and Immigration and Customs Enforcement treated all cases alike. And it it, it made no sense whatsoever as a policy matter. And I've always said there are few things as powerful as being a prosecutor to determine whether or not a particular uh, offense should be prosecuted. So, for instance, law enforcement may ticket and prosecute jaywalkers, there may be perfectly legitimate reasons for doing so because it's dangerous to them, it's dangerous to drivers, but there may be other reasons why it's not necessary to actually use scarce resources to prosecute jaywalkers. There are arguments on both sides. And there may be some individuals that are in the United States who, yes, have overstayed their visas or who entered the United States without authorization but have been here for decades, have lawful or lawful permanent resident children or U.S. citizenship program uh, children, those individuals, in our opinion, should be moved to the very bottom of the priority list 
perhaps in some instances to be dealt with appropriately, but they should not be given uh, uh, the same amount of attention as a human rights violator or a child pornographer. That's where we should, in my opinion, in the Obama administration's opinion, that's where scarce prosecutorial resources should be spent. So that was a policy decision that you made. And as you, as you described, the immigration reform proposal, which had been crafted by the Gang of Eight, uh, never made it through Congress. And a, as a result of that, um, the president, President Obama, elected to use his executive authority to, to create a program called DACA. Um, how involved were you with the creation of DACA? And, and uh, tell us about the reflections that led to that. I, I was intimately involved in the creation of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. I was one of literally a handful of individuals that was aware of uh, and deeply involved in the creation of such a program for the Dreamers, which are and were and are young people uh, who were brought to the United States, in many cases literally in the arms of their parents, and brought here no fault of their own, that had established lives and were going to school or working, and many believed that they were in fact U.S. citizens and had no idea that they weren't. There were about 800,000 of them, according to our calculations. And I actually had the distinct pleasure of appearing on stage at the American Immigration Lawyers Association's massive annual conference of many thousands, many thousands of private bar attorneys, as the president had just announced from the Rose Garden the DACA decision, an executive decision, actually issued by the Secretary of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, not issued by the President of the United States. It's a, it's a small technical difference, but it, your, your, your uh, students uh, of law will appreciate those sorts of uh, distinctions. And for the first time in history, the General Counsel of ICE, who is seen as an adversary, frankly, by the thousands of private bar attorneys present at this annual conference, was given a standing ovation as I took the stage just as President Obama had finished his remarks. I'm, I'm sure it'll be the last time I've ever received a standing ovation for anything in my life, and undoubtedly the last time any general counsel of ICE will receive a standing ovation from the American Immigration Lawyers Association. We literally went through uh, over a million cases to review them to make sure that the individuals that were granted this special status were deserving. They, they, they hadn't committed any crimes. They came into the United States at a, 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 a relatively tender age, uh, etc. They were involved in school or vocational programs, and it was an incredibly proud moment. But President Obama, I think, felt that he had no choice given the collapse of the Gang of Eight's comprehensive immigration reform uh, attempts, and that this was a way of protecting approximately 800,000 individuals for all intents and purposes were Americans and were here uh, because of no fault of their own and that were contributing to our society. Such a large group of people to be removed would in fact have a, have a pretty harsh impact on their communities, I would imagine. That was uh, part of it. But can that not be seen as, as just um, 
put, putting into more formal shape the policy you were just describing about prioritizing where we put resources uh, in the first part. And then, as you say, well, also out of respect for these kids who had, had no fault in their coming here. Right. And many, uh, many individuals were uh, outraged, I think, to put it mildly, that the president, through his secretary of Homeland Security, had essentially, through executive order or fiat, uh, provided protection to an extraordinarily large number, but a small class, if you look at it globally, of of individuals. Uh, And it was in line with our policy with the administration to take a hard look at which cases merited prosecutorial discretion, which all prosecutors in any system, whether it's federal, state, local, or tribal, are faced with. And we saw this class as particularly meritorious. And I I stand by that decision. And I, I firmly believe it was the right decision of the president. I wish, obviously, we had been able to do that action through legislation, which would have been a lot uh, clearer and neater and provide uh, much more guarantee to the dreamers than by doing it through this executive policy decision-making process. Is DACA going to survive? I, I think some form of DACA will survive. President Trump has gone back and forth on it. I think he realizes that this is a very appealing group of uh, young people. Uh, They haven't committed crimes. It wasn't their decision to come to this country. The vast majority of them are doing incredibly important, good, and valuable things for their communities. They're in school. They're serving in our military and or they're in vocational programs. They're, They're for all intents and purposes, Americans. At the same time, he feels, I think, a certain degree of uh, an obligation to his so-called base to appear tough and strong on all matters uh, relating to immigration, whether it's building the, the wall or cracking down on anyone in the country who's not a lawful permanent resident or on a valid visa or uh, in, in the process of obtaining some sort of protection or status in this country. So I, I, I don't know. I certainly hope that we actually have legislation someday that can enshrine the protections that we obtained for the DREAMers through executive action in actual law. Uh, and I, I, I hope that's the case, Todd. I, I just I don't know. I thanked Peter for the conversation, and we wrapped up the interview at that point. It's important to note that our conversation took place before the recent Supreme Court ruling about DACA. You may recall that the Trump administration had attempted to rescind DACA altogether. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts delivered the court's opinion, finding that the administration's attempt at rescission had been arbitrary and capricious and therefore violated the Federal Administrative Procedure Act. Thus, for now at least, DACA stands. I reached out to Peter on the day of the opinion to ask for comment, and this is what he said. The Supreme Court's decision today is a major victory for DACA recipients, their families and communities, all Americans, and the rule of law. We created the DACA program way back in 2012, and it's important to remember the real-life impacts 
of allowing this program to continue. 700,000 DACA recipients who came to this country as children and grew up as our neighbors and friends will be able to continue to live, work, and contribute to the only country most have ever known. I want to thank you for joining us here for another episode of Tending Bar. And I'm especially grateful to Peter Vincent for his generous time and his candid comments. I'm sure you'll want to join me in thanking him for his public service. I hope you'll join us right back here next time. Until then, I'm Todd Harris. This is Tending Bar, and I'll see you soon.